God's going to destroy all the powers uh, of evil that are arrayed against God, and the end is about God's victory. There are many things that make the book of Revelation a very difficult book to read. Mm -hmm. The first being, like you said, is it's not linear. Mm -hmm. And so much of the Bible is. Yes. Like, it's very orderly. Um, you know, whether it's the genealogies or the laws or even just the narrative. Mm -hmm. It's all very, very orderly. And then we get mm -hmm. to the very end and suddenly the last book is a confusing knot of something. And because it's like, you know, seven of this, seven of this, mm -hmm. like numbers seem to be important. You kind of think that it should be orderly, it should be linear, but it's not. Um, as well as it's this different genre. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we don't really have that genre today. Mm -hmm. So, like, modern readers will look at it and try to make sense out of it. But since we don't have that genre, we don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. It's almost to me like um, a genre I am only tangentially familiar with. My, my wife has read a number of... Um, novels that are written as verse. So like there's a number, and this is like a more recent kind of phenomenon where um, you'll get a story as you read the course of the whole novel. Um, she's reading one right now called Punching the Air. Um, but the, the course of the novel, it tells a story, but like it, almost every page is like a free verse poem. They're freestanding. And so it's just as much about the emotional experience of what's going on, the symbolic experience of what's going on. And yet there's a story that's told to the whole thing. But it can't, it's not reducible to just a plot, that like, each thing is a poem and sort of does something different. In some ways, Revelation feels like that to me. Or it feels like a musical to me. And it, again, there are a number of times where people break in a song left and right, and while things are being destroyed hither and thither and throughout the book of Revelation, there's also a heavenly chorus that will break, break in a literal song. Um, and it gets in a way that is similar to when you watch a musical. You're not supposed to stop and go like, well, how did everybody learn these dance moves? Somebody just, you know, like, no. Mm -hmm. We suspend disbelief and go, in this story, we're now, it's not about another event that's happening, but this song is now explaining how somebody feels or something, the, the significance of, of what's happening. And the book of Revelation, in a lot of ways, works like that, too. That it's less about this event is then followed by this event in a chronological way. And more like, it feels more like poetry, and in some ways feels like a, like a late Beatles album, where the poetry is deliberately kind of trippy, um, because it is meant to convey what is fantastical and beyond our ability to, to grasp with language. And I think sometimes we we get too literal with this book. Mm -hmm. You know, like we said, you know, we want to think that you know these seven plays, seven bowls, seven trumpets are twenty-one different things. Really, that number seven is symbolic right. throughout all of Scripture. Seven is a, is a symbol of wholeness, like right. completeness. Sometimes that's good, completeness, and sometimes, right. like in the book of Revelation, that means, like, complete destruction. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we have to be careful when we read this book not to take it that it's absolute, literal, like, this is how the right. world is going to end. Right, right, right. And I think what hinders our ability to remember to not take it literally is oftentimes now when modern readers read the book of Revelation... The thing that we think about first and foremost mm -hmm. is the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, which does take the book of Revelation and kind of puts it in a modern day society and, like, very literally, this is what it's going to look like when, you know, God comes again or the rapture or whatever language they use. Mm -hmm. 
But um, I think that hinders our ability to actually read the book mm-hmm. of Revelation well. In, in a similar way, what, what the Jenkins and the Hay crowd did with the Left Behind series, in some ways they were riffing on what Hal Lindsey did a generation before him mm-hmm. in the late great planet Earth. And similarly, you'll find in that strain of thinking, the attempt to take in the images of Revelation and make them into modern technological things. So like, you know, th- this is a move that like Hal Lindsey makes really, oh, there's a scene where there are these terrible locusts uh, that, you know, look like scorpions. Wait a second, that's what a helicopter looks like. Clearly, the Bible's describing helicopters. Well, that's an attempt to try and make this, this book of the Bible mean something immediately in a 21st or 20th century context, but I'm really not sure that's what the book of Revelation is intended to do. Um, and it, that also forces you to do things to say that this book of the Bible meant nothing for the first 2,000 years of history, and then all of a sudden, now in the 20th century, it has meaning. But for the first 1,900 years, nobody could have ever guessed what this meant. But now with the invention of, say, the helicopter, or the internet, or particular modern technological advance that people want to read into the book of Revelation, now this book has meaning. That, to me, seems, again, really, really suspicious interpretive move to say, for the vast majority of Christian history, this had no meaning for them. They shouldn't have even bothered reading this book. It was only important for people who would come along now. Again, that, that feels kind of narcissistic to me. Um, so the, 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 whole, the whole challenge of the book itself is one layer of, of difficulty. Another set of challenges are the kind of violence. Some of the violence in the book is when plagues, almost like the plagues of Egypt, are unleashed now on the whole world. Um, and then there's also times where uh, a divine messianic figure is sort of depicted as the one who is the agent of a war against all the powers of evil. And again, this can make us really, really uncomfortable for a couple of reasons in art. One is, I don't, I'm not really sure that we get that this is literature written from folks on the underside. I mean, that, like, when, when the book of Revelation is written, it is dangerous and illegal to be a Christian, and it looks everywhere like the powers of the empire are winning because everywhere they are winning, because, you know, Rome is killing us, and they're rounding us up, and the respectable religious people are throwing us in jails. Um, and Christians, in the earliest generations, refused to fight back by taking up their own weapons and fight the Romans back. Their witness was, we will suffer, we will be a witness, but we won't kill people back. Um, and that made it feel like, you know, you're the rebellion against the empire, or, or worse yet, you're just the, vic- the victims of this what seems to be eternal evil. And part of Rome's arrogance was they went around bragging, saying, we will last forever. I mean, that's one of the Roman slogans. You know, eternal Rome, it will last forever. Um, and if, you, if you're greeted with that kind of propaganda over and over and over and over and over again, there's going to be something inside you that says, like, but is that really true? Doesn't God eventually win? And what does it look like when God wins? Is God going to have like just a narrow, small victory? Or, and, and part of the book of Revelation is to say, in the end, there's not a shred of resistance eventually against God. God wins over the powers of evil. Um, but it's uncomfortable how that gets described in some places. In particular, let me, let me offer one of the, what I think is like one of the like, central passages that seems to depict um, Jesus leading the battle. Um, in the middle of chapter 19, Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True, and righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And this figure, then, as you continue on, he commands the armies of heaven, uh, and from his mouth is a sharp sword which will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed King of King and Lord of Lords. And sort of with that, with this introduction, immediately all the powers of evil are destroyed in just sort of just his appearance. Once this rider appears, the war is over, and the powers of evil are destroyed, and sort of that's it. Um, but this, this, this figure is a challenging one, because it's easy to read this as, oh, see, this is who God is. In the end, God wins by killing his enemies and destroying them. And others who would say, that's not really what this image is all about. But it's, it's awfully tempting to project, to take a look at this and protect John Wayne on the rider on the white horse, instead of discovering that this is also the slain but resurrected lamb. Yeah, I think that image for me is so vivid, vivid, of mm -hmm. this guy in really fine white robes, but dipped in blood. You know, it kind of, it makes me think of every single movie that I have seen where, like, it's a battle scene and our valiant hero is, has blood splattered across mm -hmm. his face and his armor and his sword and he's still fighting because again it's not his blood because if it's his blood then he wouldn't still be fighting probably or he wouldn't be fighting as well and I and I think that that is again part of the tension of reading this particular verse is Whose blood is this? Mm -hmm. And the way that our society and our world tends to work is we want to assume that the blood is the blood of his enemies. Mm -hmm. But yet, this is the beginning, right? Like, the heavens opened and there was and a white horse. Right. So this is, like, in theory, the beginning of a battle and he is leading the charge into the battle and yet the blood is already there. Yeah. So the blood is not, I would argue, his enemy, yeah. but rather his, his own. own. Yeah. And it seems especially important, given that clearly that this is a figure, this is a representation of, of Christ in the, in the book of Revelation. He's, you know, if, if it weren't clear already, he's given titles, the word of God. Oh, there's lots of, okay, this is, this is Christ, this is Jesus. And the other main figure for who Christ is in the book of Revelation is this lamb who has been slaughtered and is yet alive. In other words, so it's the, the, it's the cross and resurrection that guarantees Jesus' victory, or that is Jesus' victory, and not that Jesus now, after he's risen, oh good, now I've got to really fight off the devil. That didn't do the trick. And I think that's a really important interpretive move, is do we actually think the cross and resurrection are what bring about the defeat of evil, or do we think that wasn't enough, after that then Jesus goes to punch somebody, and that will finally win the battle. Um, if we believe the myth of redemptive violence, that resurrection is just a prelude to allow Jesus to punch whoever needs to be punched, that says something about how we're going to read this passage. To me, it seems the book of Revelation argues the victory is won already by Jesus' death and resurrection. And the other reason I say that is the, the only weapon that's described that this writer has is the sword that comes out of his mouth, his word. So, like, th this seems to me really important. That, like, there's, no, there's actually no swinging of sword if, when, when this figure on the horse speaks the powers of evil are destroyed. It, to me, suggests an echo back to Genesis and to the mm -hmm. creation story where God creates by the power of speaking and bringing the world into existence. And the, the, if, if this is anywhere to be on the right course, that seems to me to be another really interesting 
I, I guess, uh, riff on the, the creation stories of the culture around at the time. Like the, the creation story that Genesis tells doesn't involve a cosmic battle, whereas the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, has the gods fighting the battle and carving up the, the, you know, the carcass of the chaos monster that's left after the battle and making the world out of that. And the Genesis story says, no, God doesn't need to kill anybody or fight anything to create the world. God just speaks. So it suggests to me, even in Revelation, there's that same idea of God doesn't need to like, get out a sword and kill enemies. God just speaks and the powers of evil in the end are destroyed. And it's God's speech that wins the day, not that God needs enough firepower and that will finally you know, destroy the powers of evil. Um, so even even though that this figure on the horse has a sword, it is literally described as only the powers of his word, the sword that comes out of his mouth. In other words, his his word and his name, in case we missed the point, his title is the Word of God. Um, so again, that suggests to me in the end that this isn't rah rah. We should all pick up our weapons to fight the powers of evil. But this, the book is written very much about trusting that God is the one who does the defeating of the powers of evil. And once the defeating of the power of evil is done, then we get my favorite chapter of the whole Bible, <laughs> Revelation 21, where we are told that death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. That all of these things, all of this violence, will be done. That seems to me an, an interesting point, too. That even if we, even if we say... Here's violence as part of earlier in the story, that the new order of things that comes at the end is one that is free of violence altogether. Um, that in the new creation, there isn't peace through weaponry, or peace through we've got a bigger uh, sword or, or more bombs than the enemy, that's how we'll know. But in the end, not, the old logic is just completely destroyed. The same way that like the ancient prophets, when they envision God's new creation, they picture lambs and wolves laying down together, not that the lambs all of a sudden get guns that you know, keep the wolves away. But like, no, there's a new ordering of things where it doesn't depend on somebody else's death to keep me safe. Um, and again, if, that's, if, that's, if we're on somewhere on the right track, that seems important. The Bible ends with this idea of, even though it, sometimes it feels like we live in a world where we have no choice but some kind of violence, that's not the end of the creation story. That's not the end of how the Bible tells things. And if that's right, to me that reframes all the conversation we've had in this whole series, too. Because when we, when we started and looked in Genesis about, like, after the flood story, there's this sort of, if anybody murders somebody, that person should also be put to death. We talked about that seemed to be a necessary requirement in a world where violence already existed. You know, that it's sort of, all right, if it happens, if somebody should kill somebody else, that can't stand. You have to put limits on how much violence can be allowed. So we've got to, we've got to stop it. So that's why there's that rule. Um, but what we get at the end of Revelation is this idea that there's a whole new kind of creation where we're transformed and we don't have to live within the bounds of uh, violence as a necessity anymore. We'll be changed in such a way, even our hearts will be changed in such a way that we won't need to kill anymore. Can I ask you all, I mean, in some ways, this whole book feels, it's really easy to just say, well, this doesn't apply to me in my life because I'm just trying to dig it through my week. I just won't read it or worry about it. But are there particular places that this book and how we deal with the violence and it makes a difference in our day-to-day lives or how we face challenges or problems in our lives? I wouldn't say that this book helps me in my day-to-day life. I would say that this book gives me hope for the future, Mm -hmm. but that that 
isn't like a day-to-day -day hope, but rather when the big things happen, mm, okay. it gives me hope. Like this, uh, like like I have said numerous times, Revelation 21 is my favorite chapter of the whole Bible. And it is the text I like to preach on the most for funerals, mm -hmm. that when people die and when bad things happen in the world, you know, whether it's the violent violence or pain or grief or anything really, um, all those bad things, Revelation 21 is the one where I keep coming back to for my hope that these bad things, like this isn't the end of the story, that the end of the story is God coming and making God's home among God's peoples, and that that's a plural, that mm -hmm. it's not like God has this small group of people that God cares about, but rather it's lots of people, yeah. and that pain will be no more, death will be no more, God will wipe, wipe away every tear. That is the hope I have when things get bad. I think that point that you made is a really important one that helps also put up a guardrail of misusing other parts of the book of Revelation too, is that, that, that idea that in the new creation, there's all nations who are represented there, and this includes everybody, rather than just me and my immediate group or ethnicity or culture or tribe. And the whole book of Revelation keeps dropping that hint. There's this innumerable crowd that shows up around the throne and the Lamb, and the writer makes a point of saying, there are people from every tribe and language and nation, look, they're all singing together. Um, but if we take that seriously, that puts up guardrails that we not treat the book of Revelation as... Me and my group are the holy ones. We've got to fight out against our enemies. And man, the scary thing is how often in the last 2,000 years, maybe the last 1,700 years, because for the first 300, we were pretty good about not doing this, um, <laughs> but it was awfully tempting to take passages from the book of Revelation or other places and say, there's going to be this righteous few who fight the battle against the powers of evil. We've got to be ready to fight, and we're God's army. There is never, never in any of the book of, the Re of Revelation the imagery that we humans are supposed to take up our weapons and go fight the people we mm -hmm. think are the enemies. And we also definitely do not get to say, the country I'm a part of is God's country and everybody else is God's enemy. We must fight all the other countries around because we're the chosen ones. That, nowhere is that in the book of Revelation. In fact, one of the things that like the Hal Lindsey's and the Jerry James and the Tim LaHaye seem to re recurringly wrestle with is, how come America doesn't show up in the book of Revelation? Because surely we must be very important. How come we aren't? And there's all sorts of interesting answers they may give about why Christians, or why uh, the U.S. isn't, isn't specific, explicitly named, and why there's no symbolism of red, white, and blue, or 50 stars, or 13 stripes in the book of Revelation. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure the book of Revelation is as interested in us as we are interested in ourselves, and that, that's a humbling thing. The other difficulty that I'm not sure we're good at, but I will take the risk of saying this at the risk that you or others will pick up rocks and throw at me. Um, but the, the culture in which we live is a lot closer to the empire than mm -hmm. the people that the Book of Revelation was written for and by. Um, we live in the most powerful nation in the world, and in f the first century, that's a lot closer to Rome than what Christians were in the, in the first century. So it does something to our reading experience, um, to read this book, and it is awfully tempting to go, yeah, those persecuted people, that's us. Um, no. <laughs> uh, that, no, that, that is not what that, no. Um, and while it is possible to say that um, Christians in different places in the world live with real persecution, it is, man, is that tempting, but totally not responsible to assume me, comfortable person uh, living in the United States, I'm being persecuted, and that God is, again, God is on the side of 
me and my immediate group, however I define them. Um, because in the end, the picture we're given from the beginning to end of Revelation is that in the end, God's vision, even in the new creation, includes the diversity of people from all nations and languages and tribes. That seems an important point. Mm -hmm. Other things that, uh, when, when, you, when you consider this book, Eric, <coughs> what, what, is it, what does it mean to you? It, Sarah talked about it, that sort of the underlying groundhog for the big moments. Of how, how, does, how does this book speak to you or not speak to you? So, I'm, I'm with Sarah completely, 110%. Like, this is not my everyday go-to, like, if I had to pick a... Like, if I'm looking for comfort from Scripture, I'm probably not trying to remember <laughs> I know, I'll read about the birds of prey gorging on the carcass. Yes. <laughs> but when people ask me about the book of Revelation, and it's not one that I've studied nearly enough, um, but I always tell them that the underlying message is not only just the hope for the future and the new heaven, the new earth, and all the nations, and all of God's peoples coming together and God being among them, but it's the fact that God wins. Mm -hmm. You know, and like there are times in life where it just seems like everything is against you. Mm -hmm. And for me, then the book of Revelation comes as a nice reminder that, you know what? Yeah, everything might seem to be going against me right now, but eventually, someday in the future, whether or not I'll see it in my lifetime or not, God's going to win over all this. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's the same kind of hope, um, just taking a little bit different skew on it. But. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, knowing that no matter how crappy life might get, someday mm -hmm. God's going to work everything out. That seems to me to suggest that our calling is, on the one hand, we're not allowed to be passive and say, my life now doesn't matter because in the end God wins and I don't have to do anything. But on the other hand, I don't get to live in the illusion that it's up to me having enough brute force or power or weaponry or numbers or whatever to win. God's victory is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. It does not depend on me having a power or a political influence or money or wealth or you know, whatever the category is. And yet on the other hand, we're called to live in light of that promised future, almost as to borrow a line from our liturgy as a foretaste of the feast to come. Mm -hmm. People look in our lives and go, oh, that's what it's going to be like, so that people get a glimpse of radical love or forgiveness or mercy or goodness or something in, in the lives of Christians, so that in the end, we're intentionally living ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, thanks everybody for being able to delve into this complicated book. Certainly this doesn't answer all the questions of the book of Revelation. But that may be a conversation or a need for another time in a whole lot longer series. Um, but at least we've had at least some conversation on some of the most challenging parts of the violence in the book of Revelation and where it leads. Thanks for joining us here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye.